You're listening to the third episode of Season 4 of the Wicked Podcast. I am, as always, Mike Moore. This podcast season is about songs written for, or to, or about women. Mostly, it's about how hard it is for a pair of human beings to form a healthy, lasting connection, particularly if their emotional and social development was messed around with by a strict fundamentalist community in their formative years. It is also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating around a song from my album, Spurned, which is an old word that means rebuffed, turned away, and rejected. You can listen to it like one watches a video of a car accident over and over in slow motion. Episode 3. Too Much for Marriage. This song is another one reclaimed from the refuse pile. It was a throwaway kind of gift song, and I threw it away back in the day as not being memorable or serious or funny to keep around. But for some reason, I've decided to put it in here almost as a historical record or a good example of a specific kind of thing. When hanging around with the Pennsylvania crowd, people our age and older raised in the Plymouth Brethren group, the meeting, but being too clinically individualistic to ever fit in or go along with it too much, I knew Michael Vetter's whole family. He was the baby of the family and had two sisters who were a fair bit older than we were. The eldest married a guy from around here, right around when I first met them. Karen, the second eldest, was a different story. It didn't look like Karen was ever going to date or marry. She just gave that kind of impression. We could kind of sense the growing reality that many young brethren people just weren't marrying young brethren people as much anymore like they were expected to. Many wanted out. And the way we were raised, you wanted to get married in your early 20s so your adult life could begin, moving out from your parents, sex, maybe even learning to talk to members of the opposite sex, settling into one's lifelong career, buying a car, buying a house, and if you didn't have this mostly together by 25, or at least in the planning stages, it was time to start worrying. If you hit 30 and none of this was happening, well... Girls and young women in our group were kind of raised to treat their own romantic and sexual appeal rather like a revolver they were to keep in the bottom of their underwear drawer. They had such a weapon, most of them, but they weren't to buy ammunition or load it or walk around with it on display and certainly not fire it irresponsibly toward crowds of male bystanders. Our group turned a very leery eye on any young women who obviously had great big tack nines or nice assault rifles, girls who wore a lot of obvious makeup or had hair that was big even by 80s standards or who wore figure-enhancing bras or clothing that exposed cleavage or short skirts or even anything that showed their general silhouette was them trying too hard, being up to no good, clearly looking for trouble. It certainly wasn't that brethren girls were dressed in a butch or a masculine or an androgynous gender in specific way, though. Quite the opposite. They were dressed stereotypically feminine, but without much appeal. They were to dress much more like elderly ladies than would normally happen. Like menopause had just happened, rather than puberty. Carol, raised in our group, weighs in on the issue. Did you get yourself into trouble being too... Uh fun i did a little bit i lost friends over it so when i started wearing makeup the family in the meeting i was going to tell their daughters that they were not allowed to hang out with me if i wore makeup mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And so that was painful because I wanted I wanted to have friends. I was in a meeting of about 15 people. So that meant all, all the friends. Right. All the girls, at least. And I did not stop. They, they talked to my mother about it and these verses and tried to get, you know, her to talk to me about it. And my mother thought that it was okay for me to at that point. And so the other family did not. They ended up going to my friend's um, school, the locker, and going through the locker, and they found mascara. And I remember she was grounded for two months of it for having mascara. And, it, and this was a high school. So when I do hear about the patriarchy, I know a little bit about what, and it wasn't so much the men, although they both play a role in it. Yeah, I mean, people want to say, well, it's a patriarchal church. Well, of course, the men speak. So it's very clearly, overtly patriarchal. But when it comes to the controlling of young women who got controlled more than any other group, women seem to be very actively involved in it, in my experience. Yes, I've seen that too. So you got spoken to about makeup? Makeup, you couldn't have, you know, like a poster. I had a friend who had a poster of Ben Affleck at college. And and when her father found out, pulled her out of college. Pulled her out of college. She was going the wrong direction, you know, too worldly. Does she ever return to college? Later, but... As far as I know, they're not really on speaking terms to this day. So, right. I mean, it, that just is kind of an example of probably the relationship and, and how things got, you know, worked out between them. I seem to recall a story you told me in Texas about some guy in the assembly phoning your dad to complain about what you were wearing or something, but you answered the phone, so you were a bit sassy with him? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I would uh, do that just as a way to sort of have him to stop talking to me. <laughs> right. To, to stop, stop making comments, you know, always, always something about the outfit or what they didn't like. And I'd accuse them of wanting to see more of my boobs or something. And that would make them really awkward. I can imagine. I kind of admire that. When you told me about it, that's basically what you said, that, that they phoned up to complain about what you were wearing or something. And you basically said, do you want to see my boobs or something like that? And it completely, they couldn't deal with that honesty. They kind of, and they never, and that guy never said anything again. So. Yeah, they're too used to uh, not having to be direct. I think the women would be more direct in these things, don't you think? Yeah, it would just be anything, you know, the the color of the shirt, the uh, if there was an image on a shirt, you know, I would get a big talk about how you know God doesn't want an image on your shirt. You know, you get a laboring brothers would make comments, and one time a laboring brother really gave me a hard time. I wore an Einstein shirt to to meeting. Yeah. Einstein. And I think he, he thought I wasn't wasn't going down the right path with that and accused me of not going to Bible conferences anymore. And it turned out I was going to be going to this Bible conference that was going to be happening that year. But I told him not only was I going to go to the conference, but I was going to sit next to him the entire time. And I did. He didn't <laughs> like that. See, this, this is why I like your stories, because all of them involve no one being able to crush your spirit. Harold also has something to say. Do you think that, you know, the verse that says men looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the inward things of the heart in the King James. Don't you think that it, the, the outward things, it seems to be mostly about sex that, that all oh, we absolutely, want to about. Absolutely. Uh, the, the world's obsessed because the church has made it dirty. Yeah. I still felt it. You know, I felt the uh, comments and I felt, you know, I was a little bit rejected and things like that. But no, I didn't. I think I, because I saw how it played out for my mom and other people. Megan, having pursued an illicit relationship with a brethren guy, 
didn't really know that we brethren folks didn't grow up feeling we deserved someone good, but we definitely felt that we needed to get someone good. We grew up being told several times a week that what we deserved was hell. But yeah, we somehow needed to convince someone to marry us anyway. You keep using the word deserve. And that's interesting to me because I wasn't raised that we deserved anything but hell. So when it comes to anything, especially like a relationship, the idea of who do you deserve? Do you deserve a relationship? What sort of person do you deserve? That's really foreign to a brethren person. I never really thought about it, obviously, because I'm not one. But I guess it's kind of um, different as well, because in the community or, or brethren, um, you deserve what God wants and whatever his plan is and whatever he gives you. So, yeah, I can definitely see how that doesn't really factor into it. And the brethren teaching you deserve hell and anything nice from God is free. Basically, you didn't deserve it. So if you get any spouse, God gave you that one and be grateful. Yeah, that's incredibly tough as well, I think, because obviously, like, you know, if you get a bad one, you're going to think, oh, no, what have I done to deserve this? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Am I bad? But you notice that the assumption is that you deserve hell, that you're bad. And so that question of, am I bad? Well, of course you are. You, since you were a small child, you were told that you were bad. I was bad recently. I went and saw stand-up comedy by Louis C.K. despite his being canceled. Everybody has different words that offend them, different things that they hear that they get offended by. I, to me, the thing that offends me the most is every time that I hear the N-word. Not by the way. I mean the N-word. Literally, whenever a white lady on CNN with nice hair says the N-word, that's just white people getting away with saying That's all that is. They found a way to say And he was talking about being a little Catholic boy of five years of age and having a priest loom over you and tell you you're bad, you're going to hell. And he was sort of making a joke about saying, look at me, I'm an adult and I'm wearing a special costume and this is my job. So I'm correct. You know, you are bad and you're going to hell. But he was, I think, making the serious point that that's a very weird thing to do to the psychology of a five-year-old. Yeah, definitely. I didn't even really know what to say to that. That's such a foreign concept to me. And the idea of like a small child being told that, like that's mm-hmm. terrifying. Oh, I can absolutely. see where all the fear comes from. I became a Christian when I was three years old because I had been told that. And also the concept of Sunday morning church. In many churches, they're expecting some kind of a nice time, like a nice religious time, but a nice time. They go out and the music is nice and we feel nice. Uh, For brethren people, even like me, the style is the opposite, that you go out to feel horrible, which can feel good in a way, but there's something masochistic about it, that you go out and you remember what a sinner you are and you think long and hard about deserving to go to hell and and how flawed you are and what you're supposed to feel is grateful that god would love someone who's as horrible as you are and for the right kind of person and the right kind of life you can get that that becomes a a nice part of your week that maybe you get a bit too big ahead during the week you think too good of yourself and sunday reminds you and you sit there and whip yourself up into these memories that you're bad and that can work for some people and although I think it's a bit suspect whenever I go to a regular church and the idea is we're going to get all Jesus happy. Now we're tripping balls on the Jesusness. I just say like, what are you doing? Like you're supposed to feel horrible. Like you're sinners. You know, that's what I bring with me to a church because of my upbringing. Goodness. That is crazy. That hearing that just filled me with anxiety to be fair. Like 
constantly thinking I was bad, how is that a life? Well, there's uh, the, the assumption is that we are too arrogant, that we are proud, and that it's a sin to be proud. So you wouldn't write the word pride and say that's good. That That's a, a confession of sin, the word pride. So that's, you know, really messes. Gay people are not served in any way by brethren movements. And one of the which is the word pride, pride's bad. But yeah, if you go to churches, you'll very quickly find them dividing into two kinds. One is about the seriousness and the solemnness and the ancientness of it um, with the thought of the beyond and things that are beyond what humans understand, you know, ancient things, the church is millennia old and there's talking Latin and they have incense and candles and stained glass pictures of saints and angels and things. That's one kind of which mine kind of was. And then the modern kind, which I'm assuming you've never been, there's like a drum kit and electric guitars and a bunch of people singing about how much they love being Christians. And it's like a party. And to me, that's really different. They started doing that in the eighties. That's how they're trying to keep young people because young people have usually left by your age and uh, they're trying to keep you guys. And they go, well, let's make church a little bit of a rave. Yeah. Okay. Um, no, I haven't, I haven't even set foot in a church before, if I'm honest. Um, I can see why they would want to do that. Keep it fun and something that you want to go to. Then yeah, of course you'll keep people there. Melody's brethren group wasn't quite like ours, but that expectation that all brethren people needed to get married with kids fairly early on in life was definitely there. So speaking of relationships, that's been a real touchy topic um, a lot of my life. There was no pressure. I don't remember at least any pressure growing up. I don't remember anybody saying to me, oh, when are you going to get married? When are you going to do this? When are you going to do that? Um, it was just assumed. One time when I was somewhere 18, 19, 20, I was in community college at the time. So like freshman, sophomore year, I remember sort of stressing out about a final and somebody I trusted, one of the, uh, I think the leaders of the youth said, uh, this is all going to seem so unimportant once you're married with kids. And I, you know, I still remember that so many years later and that set a tone for a lack of a desire to have a career, um, not believing that I needed a career. I was certainly never encouraged to think about a career, you know, some sort of fulfilling full-time job. Um, I always had jobs. I've had a job since I was 16, but it wasn't, you just didn't think about it in terms of a career, something you're going to do to have enough money to retire on, something, you know, something that's really going to make you a good income. That was not considered. Your husband was going to do that. That was his job. He was to be the provider. So here, um, I and a, several of my friends, we're in our mid-30s to say mid-50s. I'm 47. We're at a point in our lives where now we realize we don't have enough money to retire. We're never going to be able to retire. We're not going to have that, you know, last 30 years of our lives going on cruises because we don't have husbands who had great paying jobs to support us. We're doing fine on our own. You know, we make enough money to support ourselves, but not, we don't have what we were promised ultimately by the people in the church. We don't have that family support system. We don't have kids who are going to take care of us if anything happens. We are on our own, alone in the world. Um, I dated a Lutheran guy once, right after I became a Christian in my early, very early 20s. I was probably just 20, 21 years old. And he was a fantastic guy, 
but he wasn't brethren, so he wasn't good enough. He was, I was expected to invite him to our brethren church, but I was not allowed to go to a service at his Lutheran church. Non-brethren girls who for some reason came out to brethren youth group things often hadn't gotten that memo about sexy being bad. In the case of Cedar, one of my Pennsylvania friends, being sexy was a very big part of her young life. So when she came out to our meeting hall for a Bible study, 19 years old with her short spiky hair bleached white blonde, fire engine red lipstick liberally applied, a tiny black sleeveless scoop neck dress that was slit nearly to her waist, fishnet stockings, and Doc Martens on her feet, it could have caused no more stir if Cassandra Peterson, in full Elvira Mistress of the Dark costume, had attended our Bible study. You might need a little help fixing up the place. Hey, Elvira, we got us a couple more volunteers. Great, just grab a tool and start banging. For people too young to be able to Google who that is, imagine if, I don't know, Lizzo and Megan the Stallion showed up dressed for a performance of WAP to our staid cover up and shut up the women Bible study. It goes without saying that androgynously built women without a lot of curves had a far easier time not drawing the disapproval of brethren women for catching male attention than the curvy ones did, given the bounty with which the Lord had blessed the latter and for which the Lord made us truly grateful. In past seasons, I have often noted women talking about men and the patriarchal church system dictating oppressive standards of modesty in brethren women's clothing and behavior. It was like radical feminists complaining about societal standards that women should wear tight clothes, makeup, and high heels only in reverse, complaining about a church culture and church standards that allowed church girls to do much of that at all. But woman after woman told me that other women had been the ones gossiping and giving them grief if their clothing and behavior wasn't considered within bounds by an entirely feminine hierarchy and standard for that. Campuses where men outnumber women, so women are the rarer sex mm. and therefore have more power to set the terms. I know it's so like brutal to talk in economic terms, but that like it has a lot of explanatory power. They tend to have more monogamous relationships, a culture of of, of monogamy. Well, they're setting the terms. Because they're setting the terms. And then on campuses where you have more um, women than men, the men are the rarer sex, then you have more hookup culture. It took until recently, hearing Louise Perry talking and writing from a neo-feminist perspective about things like the sexual revolution, marriage, slut-shaming, and so on, for me to draw the connection between church modesty or purity culture on the one hand and slut-shaming in the world at large on the other. This being taken aside and talked to and gossiped about and all of the female social pressure exerted on church women who seem to be, presumably, making too many men too happy of showing up on too many men's sexual radar was brethren slut-shaming, harlot-guilting, strumpet-berating, tart-lecturing. Louise argues that slut-shaming is something that women predominantly do to women, and she thinks she knows why. She says that there's a contradictory pair of ideas being tossed around in the modern mind about women. On the one hand is the very popular view that the one remaining problem women have about sex, one of the last remaining obstacles to 100% sexual freedom for women, 
is that men and some silly, men-confused women make far too much of sex. That breasts, for example, are absolutely not in any way related to sex or sexual acts, that women's bodies are just bodies, and that sex work is just work like any other work and should be viewed and treated in exactly the same way as landscaping or fixing washers and dryers or wiring the basement for electricity with no special considerations necessary at all and that men wouldn't have even noticed women's bodies to begin with if it weren't for our sick society and rape culture teaching us to. And a common narrative that you'll hear is the sexual revolution was a great idea, and it was a way of counteracting centuries of oppressive patriarchal oppression, and the problem is just that we haven't like fully implemented it. The, 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 the original idea to free everyone, to prioritise freedom above all other values was fabulous. The problem is that we haven't quite yet done it. We need more freedom. Mm. We need to push that freedom lever again and again and again until everything comes right. And I think that was the error. I think actually freedom is not the preeminent value. I think it has to be balanced against other values. But on the other hand, Louise notes that women are doing everything they can to make sure that the coin of female attractiveness, so to speak, not be devalued in any way by the actions of some women who are giving away too much for too little, lowering the market value, so to speak, of feminine appeal, causing rising inflation rates, as it were, of what it takes to get the lasting attention of men and what that attention gives them in return. Since long before I was born, feminist writing has repeatedly referenced what it calls the beauty myth. As I understand it, and I'm certainly no expert, the beauty myth is thought to be the untrue belief that women might have to do, well, anything at all to be beautiful. That men who aren't attracted to all of these beautiful women who do nothing to attract their attention at all are wrong sad believers in a myth that tells them these women are not, in fact, beautiful inside and out, just the way they are, yes, queen. And that if said men ever want to get inside these women, they'd better stop believing this myth right quick. Louise argues that things like OnlyFans and internet porn mean ordinary women trying to start ordinary relationships are surprised to find themselves expected to do all manner of sex worker type things, starting with providing nudes to people whose middle name you may not yet know. For some women in our group, coming to a Bible conference wearing a modest dress that wouldn't be so tight across the chest on most women, but was a bit snug on you, might well net you a lifetime of marriage and a cottage and a car while never having to hold down a day job again. So, Louise argues, Women are continually objecting to other women interfering in their attracting of men by shaming them. They are denying that anything they're doing with their bodies, behavior, and dress has anything at all to do with getting any man's attention at all. And they're also resenting it if they feel pressured to do more and more in order to gain said male attention, given what other women are up to and what these guys might be seeing on the internet. All of this spells a brand new taboo a taboo about doing anything or dressing a certain way to attract men. It's perfectly okay to wear that dress to impress women, but it's not okay to do it to impress men. Men are, remember, the problem. These women don't want to be made to feel shame, and they want their giving of subtle or not-so-subtle social signals to work, too. So, Louise feels, the one woman who wears a slightly low top to church 
wants to do so, A, without being pressured by other women not to wear it and made to feel ashamed of her body and of having worn it, but also B, without all of the other women also wearing lower tops than she is that day, making her wearing of the top suddenly lack the effect it would otherwise have had on male attention in that place of worship. As evolutionary psychologist Jeffrey Miller puts it, slut-shaming happens more from women than from men because it's a way of enforcing a more restrained sexual norm on other women so that not all women have to become more promiscuous than any of them would like. It was like that in our meeting, too, only brethren women weren't running the risk of needing to invest in increased promiscuity in order to find a mate or more sex worker type activity in the early phases of relationship to keep one. It was about them keeping short or tight skirts and low-neck dresses out of the meeting hall, never mind women starting to wear trousers in there at all, let alone stirrup pants. It was like there was a 1950s high school dress code still in effect. This student is wearing an extremely tight skirt and tight sweater. Open shirt, black jacket, dungarees are mentioned in the code as not proper school attire. This group is our ideal of the proper school attire and social behavior of the Hicksville Junior High students. Tammy Wynette says, sometimes... It's hard to be a woman. Michael Vetter's sassy, stocky second eldest sister Karen had a personality big enough for two. She was loud, exuberant, and funny, and couldn't resist teasing absolutely everyone nearby, somber or official people who took themselves too seriously, especially. Karen was kind of a den mother for the younger women who were hanging out with all of us. If anyone female's feelings got hurt, you might well expect to find Karen taking you aside, brethren man style, and speaking with you about manners or tact or the like. She might even buy you an enormous pink copy of Miss Manners' Guide to Excruciatingly Correct Behavior. I still have my couch cushion-sized copy. Thanks, Karen. Karen didn't seem to be getting anywhere in the brethren dating pool, and having thinned out considerably as she approached 30, especially once there'd been the 90s division, which took so many of our people with it. And so one day, we all got news. As various people had had engagement and baby showers and all of that, Karen wanted something similar herself. She said she'd bought so many gifts and attended so many things for her peers that she felt she deserved the same, even if she wasn't going to marry. So, taking a cue from bachelor parties and baby showers, Karen announced Karen's Spinster Party a party with food and gifts and songs and games to celebrate her, though she was about to turn 30 or quite possibly had turned 30 a few years previous and had no husband at the time, nor anyone clearly on deck that we knew of. She had mentioned to us making some kind of a bet at college with a worldly guy that if neither of them was married by 30, that they'd marry each other, but that hadn't happened and we didn't think it was anything other than a joke. I told Susan about it. Despite being raised Lutheran, Susan relates. She decided that well, when people get married, they get a bachelor party um, or, or whatever. And she wanted like the celebration without even having the wedding. So she threw what she called a spinster party. And we all oh, had to bring fun. gifts and everything. Of course, she fooled us all by getting married about five years later. But, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, we, we had a big party. And so I did write a song for her about her being too much for marriage, just like, you know, marriage couldn't contain someone with your personality. That's wonderful. 
I think, especially if we come from a religious tradition, we we carry all this spiritual freight on the the marriage. When you have people like you're 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 broken if you're not married, or God's calling you to singleness, and we put a lot of spiritual freight on it rather than just you know these are the circumstances whether they suck or not. I mean, you know, back in biblical time, a woman had to get married or she was likely to die. Or couldn't own property. She, had, she couldn't own property. She had no means of making, you know, it was a, a life of penury. That's why if a man's brother dies, you take his widow as your wife, bring her into the family so she's protected. Mm-hmm. That's what that was about. That's what plural marriage was about. Because, you know, you had a lot of men dying and a lot of women alone in, in an ancient society. So you bring them into the the group so that they're not otherwise they're you know like when hagar was cast out yeah die so my sister and i drove down to pennsylvania and sang karen and a room full of people the song i wrote that this episode revolves around it toys with karen being too unexpected and forceful and mischievous a person to fit easily into the brethren vision for a proper godly wife the last time i was in the same room as karen well standing on the same lawn as her maybe 10 years ago I remember Karen fixing me with the veterest of direct, unblinking stares and saying, I think the biggest tragedy of all is all of you young guys having to simply give up your sexuality for no reason at all, for decades or even your whole lives. That's a terrible, terrible thing to do to other human beings. Very, very wrong. Karen was then perhaps the age that I am now, and I was in my 40s, and Neither of us had been diagnosed with our multiple sclerosis yet, hers ending up being far worse than mine is so far, but her now having a husband to help her out with mobility issues. With an intent look that was half joking and half not back then, she then said, If you hadn't been so much younger than me, and she aggressively left that hanging. For therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. They say unto him, why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and put her away? He said unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. His disciples say unto him, if the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. But he said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save them to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. I believe this reference to men making eunuchs of themselves for the kingdom of heaven refers to Christian men who, as Karen put it, give up their sex lives for religious reasons, perhaps choosing to stay away from women to serve God full time, or being involuntary Christian celibates who refuse to have sex outside of a committed relationship that never materializes, rather than referring to the literal testicular removal undergone by some of my former students. I can tell you that as a single guy, 
if you try to have any serious conversation with any person who's like a Bible teacher or whatever, and you're a mm -hmm. single guy, you will not get out of that conversation without the word eunuch being used. That the people who say that just need to be punched in the face. Well, they're they're very well intentioned, but they're they're looking but, at you know those who have been made eunuchs or those who are whatever, and and it's I don't I don't think it's the kindest thing to say, and I don't think it's the only Bible verse to to reference, but it's always referenced. So it's like get some other ones too, maybe. Yeah, like how about hope deferred makes the heart sick, or in this world you will have trouble. Mm -hmm. You know, it, yeah. Kindly. Back to the people you just want to say. Appreciate your ministry. Check, please. Mm -hmm. You know, you just um, and people, are, you know, they think that they're well-meaning. You just have to say, hey, you know, I mean, if they keep bugging you about it, you just have to say, I, I disagree. And I, I, I really don't want to have this conversation anymore. You know, you just have to tell people until they you know, need the left foot of fellowship or something. Mm -hmm. Most of them are dead now, but I did have a couple of people that would stick out their left hand if I went to church because they weren't allowed to shake my right hand. So they would stick out their left hand to offer the left hand of fellowship. And it was a gesture of kindness in a way. Okay. They were saying like, I would, you know, I love you. I'm going to shun you for the rest of your life and shake your left hand. Um, mixed messages there. But uh, most of them are, are dead. That, that happens. I have largely fallen out of contact slash favor with the vetters in general. So I was delighted when not only Karen, but her husband, Robert, or Bobby, as he is sometimes called, agreed to give me sound bites, telling me their whole story for this episode. Growing up in the meeting as a female, we were taught to be quiet and demure, to defer to the man's decisions, taught that the highest form of godliness was to marry a spiritual man, to be a mother of as many children as he wanted, and to keep the house and be positive and happy. Complaining showed a bad spirit, wanting to work or have gasp a career in something that interested us showed a leaning towards worldliness we were to wait on the lord to bring us a husband somehow i don't think the men got that memo because they were going outside the meeting bringing in girls who are more fun more outward sexier opinionated while we meeting girls waited and waited for one of these guys to choose us but those poor outsider girls they were so used to freedoms they found it hard to conform, or they'd find a way to convince their husband to leave altogether. I had a best friend who was naturally sparkly and perky and fun, who ended up marrying a particularly devout, read, spiritual man, and I watched as that sparkly light was bleached out of her. She had three children, and then four, in the span of four years. Today she has seven. She conformed to what was expected, and she is a mere shadow of her former self. On my last visit, I saw her smile once, and that was a memory of a prank we pulled when we were younger. When she was dating this guy, well, I guess love is blind, but I could see the match was going to change her, and I vowed I would not marry someone in the meeting with that much control over me. I was 36. A reminder that much of Brethren Courting happened long distance through writing letters and mailing them. My mother told my sister and I that we could write a boy when we turned 16. However, at age 16, she upped that to 18 because she said we weren't ready. By that time, I was so skilled at hiding any interest in the opposite sex. I was a confidant to both genders. I was considered safe. I even convinced myself that marriage wasn't for me. 
I was a good meeting girl. I never flirted in high school or college because the meeting frowned on outside marriages. I never seriously considered dating outside of my church until much, much later. There was an onus in my family, sort of summed up in, he who shows anger first loses, or any kind of emotion. So even if the parents had let us date, that stigma curbed any expression of interest. It took me into my 30s to figure out why no boys took interest in me. I think it was because I'd built up a persona, a shield, that I was unavailable, uninterested in anything sensual. I quite literally had zero, no sex appeal. In fact, because of the meeting's teaching, I dressed and walked in ways that would discourage lust in both myself and the opposite sex. I hunched my shoulders forward to minimize my breasts. I wore loose clothing, long skirts, long messy hair. Somewhere in there, I rebelled and got my ears pierced, much to my mother's chagrin, and in her opinion, sealing my fate to remain unmarried. Looking back, I think not allowing a teen to date sets them up for failure in finding a future mate, and in my case, rape. Karen doesn't go into the situation here, but this is the heartbreaking reality for far more than one brethren girl of my acquaintance, doing everything she could to avoid giving anyone at meeting the impression that she was anything like a sexual person, being taught that masturbation was disgusting and psychologically damaging, having no boy show any interest in her at all, only to end up getting raped and then feeling like damaged goods. I didn't get to encounter heartbreak and other pitfalls normal kids did. I thought of myself as a pariah. Here, Karen goes into the event this song was written for. I remember my spinster bash quite fondly. I threw it for myself as a reaction to everyone's opinion that I ought to be married. Guests brought poems and limericks, and fun was had by all. But the pierce de resistance was when Mike and Debbie Moore arrived. Mike had written and composed a song called Ode to Karen. He and Debbie sang and harmonized it live in front of us. Great fun. Tongue-in-cheek humor. The amount of creativity poured into a song about me made me feel quite loved and respected. Karen also tells about trying to recover from her upbringing. At 36, I woke up. I discovered the teachings of the elders in my assembly were no different than Catholicism, whom they despised, in that the Pope is the go-between God and common people. Well, the elders were equivalent to the Pope. What they taught in their minds was from God's mouth to me. They were telling me what to believe, how to worship, and worst of all, they were using guilt to control me. And that's when I woke up. I realized that guilt is not of God. And I realized I didn't need them. I had direct access to God himself. I immediately withdrew from the meeting and I ran away to Oregon to find God on my own terms. And it took me one and a half years to dissolve the guilt and take back the reins of my own life. This was very hard. I started dating. I learned to say no. I learned to set boundaries. I learned to appreciate being a woman. But most importantly, I got a relationship with God and Jesus and learned to listen to the Holy Spirit without religion or religiously, without a church, without elders telling me what I should and shouldn't believe. I got it directly from God. And I said to God, I'd like a husband, one that you pick, because I suck at picking them. And then on a whim, I added, and I'd like him to be someone I've known in the past. I guess I was still testing God. At this point, Bobby weighs in, 
on a point in time that was way before Karen trying to recover from her upbringing, having her spinster party, and this song being written. It's about what it was like to form an instant connection as very young people, Pentecostal to Plymouth Brethren, with a girl at college and at his work, but one who assumed that not being Brethren, Bobby wasn't a Christian, and so always changed the subject to the Bible and Bible teaching when Bobby just wanted to chat with an engaging redhead. What was my impression of Karen when I met her in college? I thought, wow, this is a woman of either the same belief of me because of all the verses in the Bible that we used to talk about, or she's of some type of religion close to mine. I thought, I really need to get to know this girl. In 2006, I received a phone call from a friend with whom I'd lost contact for the last 16 years. His name was Robert. He and I had worked together in college, spending hours chatting about life and the Bible. I really, really liked him, but as a girl growing up in the meeting, I couldn't even consider allowing myself to fall for him. Before I moved to Addison, Illinois, we set it up to call on Saturday nights every two weeks, which we did until life got in the way and we grew apart. But I thought about him every March 22nd, his birthday. With all the busy life situations that we had going on, I was working two jobs, one full-time job, one part-time job, going to school, taking 12 credits. Where did I find time to do all this? And then, on top of that, while we're in college, I see that Karen is working for the Tot Watch, which was a child care center. And I couldn't wait to get to work, knowing that I had to be doing my job, but unable to complete all of it. I was always trying to find time on my 15-minute breaks or my 30-minute break when I had my lunch, how I would go up there and we would just communicate and talk about life in general. As a good meeting girl, I felt that I needed to get this guy saved just because he was receptive and I thought it was my job to get him saved. So I spent many hours bringing my Bible in and quoting verses at him and and he would just silently nod and say say nothing. And I uh, finally figured out he was Pentecostal. To me, that was a cult. Little did I know that my church was a cult as well. So he couldn't marry outside of his church, and I couldn't marry outside of mine. So the best we could do was have conversations with each other. When I found out that Karen was moving to Addison, I was like, oh, I don't want to lose contact with this young lady so I said to her, listen, if we lose contact with each other, if, if neither one of us are married by the time we're 30, why don't we look each other up and get married? Well, needless to say, it didn't happen until we're in our 40s when I made a phone call to her after losing contact with her for many years, called her, and I had blocked her on my computer, not realizing it. So in 2006, when I received Robert's voicemail, and I recognized it within three words. I knew exactly who it was. How can you forget that voice? And it took me another year and a half to actually make my way to Florida. And we had uh, quite a joyful reunion. I had no idea what this young lady was going to be like showing up at my door. Actually, I had to pick her up at the airport. I was so nervous. And I thought, what is she like? This is years later. What if I don't like her? What if she's here for a week and that's too long? I got to the airport and there she was standing 
And I thought, wow, what do I say to her? What are we going to do? She got in the truck. I threw her baggage in the truck. Next thing you know, all she does is stare at me. And I couldn't figure out what is going on. Then she started talking, but she would continuously stare at me while I'm driving. You know how you look at your peripheral vision and you can see somebody is actually staring at you? Anyways, we talked the whole way home. Of course, her eyes glued on me. I was there for a week and enjoyed myself so much that I asked him if I could stay another week, and he said yes, but I never left. We decided we knew that we wanted each other, and I saw his heart and knew that that's what I had been looking for all my life. Robert has an incredible heart, and I was just very surprised that no one had snatched him up before then. I was so thankful to God for bringing Robert into my life. Remember, I had asked God to bring me someone that I knew from my past as my husband, and I had to end up saying, good one, God, because I had never suspected, never even crossed my mind that Robert would be a viable candidate. Within two weeks of spending time with Karen, I thought to myself, wow, this girl really has changed, and she still looked the same. She looked wonderful. I was so impressed. No more Bible thumping, no more verses being thrown at me continuously. I had it all the time in my organization, and I eventually got out of my organization due to life situations of work and realizing that church isn't the only thing. Karen's family are very black and white thinkers. A person is either the next coming or the antichrist as far as they're concerned. I know what I was to them most of the time. So from the time I met her, Karen believed firmly that the way to think and the way to be was to just stop thinking and talking about critical or judgmental or unpleasant things entirely. With her family, a lot like my family and many others in our meeting, and with our church group, Karen had had enough of what she called negativity, but couldn't quite shake the habit herself any more than the rest of us could. Robert and I spent some time on his back porch talking about life in general. And one of the things that I noticed was he was so positive about everything. When I would say something negative about someone, he was right there with a positive thing to say about them. And it happened over and over and over again. And I thought, wow, this guy actually believes what he's saying. And I hadn't met someone with a heart that pure before. And I knew I wanted that in my life more than anything. So I asked God, is this the man for me? I would really like it if it were. <laughs> and I think God said yes. Before I reconnected with Robert, I had been dating a man who had money, had good looks, very charming, handsome, had a great laugh. And this was what I thought I wanted in a man. He had a brain tumor. And on his deathbed, all his other girlfriends came out of the woodwork. So I thought, you know, God, maybe you should be the one to pick the next guy because I certainly can't do it very well. And then God puts in front of me a humble, patient, kind, loving, caring, tender, balanced. I, there are not enough words to describe how wonderful this man is, but God had been preparing him for me and me for him for quite some time. And I'm very thankful that I didn't listen to the meeting who would have dictated a very spiritual, devout man that I would not have gotten along with. With me and a bunch of the rest of us, because we don't report to a Jesus depot promptly Sunday mornings, 
Many Christians feel entitled to tell people like Bobby, Karen, and I to our faces either that we aren't real Christians at all or that we are disobeying God and his word and have no real relationship with him at all. Share the fact of the what you noticed about the two Bible verses in the Rito Ferry meeting hall. Oh, um, yeah. Um, this probably won't go over so well if anybody from there. Uh, but we were working in there, and when I came into the hall, of course, being an ex-preacher type person, and um, when you go into any church, the first thing you do is you look at what's on the walls and the scriptures, and if there's statues or... But when I walked in there, the first thing I see is two scriptures, one on top of the other. And the first one said, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. End. Yeah. And the second one was about, For all, for, for we are all sinners, something or other. It's the first one that caught my eye. And I looked at the boss. And we've had many interesting discussions. And I said, You know what fascinates me about this? And I looked around, and there's a lot of sin scriptures quotes sin scriptures i said what's interesting is the word but when somebody says i really like you but they pretty much don't like you mm-hmm. but is one of those words that says basically disregard everything you've heard and uh so i'm looking up and i see this and it says for all have sinned and come short of the glory of god and it ended there and i said to him i said do you know what the rest of that says? But the gift of God is eternal life mm-hmm. through Christ. I said, so basically what the scripture is actually saying, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but disregard that now. Yeah, they put be- it in the wall. Because the gift of God. And, and the emphasis should have been on, but the gift of God. The right to talk to me, the right to be loved by me, the right to learn to love like me, the right to sit at my feet or on my knee and call me Father and say, I need help. None of that was there. Everybody that walked in got to be reminded they were a sinner. Not even saved by grace. They've sinned. And after hearing so many stories from different people, I thought... No wonder there's such a heaviness in the lives of these people. And the big argument us young guys had is we were trying to present that we saw in the Bible the idea that Jesus died so that we wouldn't have to go around feeling shame and sin and rules all the time. Yeah. And they told us that the old man, the Apostle Paul, says to reckon or consider him dead. And we're supposed to do that, but never forget for a moment that he is alive and very active in us. And I was thinking, how can you live your life as you can't your old do, self? You, you can't do both. And they were telling yeah. us we had to because they didn't well, believe. Well, they want us to be schizophrenic Christians. Yeah. And that is, we want it to be free, but we want you to be terrified of being free. Mm-hmm. Um, do not get too cocky about your freedom because it will lead you astray, my son. And and the liberty in the Bible, there's a couple almost disclaimers like you'd see on, you know, the, the uh, one of the guys that does TED Talks, his trick is to come out with a whole bottle of homeopathic sleeping pills and just take them all and say, if these were real, I would get sick now, but they're not. So I can eat the whole bottle of them. And the, because this bottle doesn't need a disclaimer that says don't eat the whole bottle because these are powerful sleeping pills. 
And in a similar fashion, I noticed that the verse about, um, there's a couple of verses about not to use liberty, you know, in this or this bad way. And I was thinking the liberty that I was raised with didn't require any form of disclaimer because there was so little of it that there was yeah. no danger that our liberty would do yes. anything. There, there's a whole movement in a lot of circles where they preach cheap grace. Mm-hmm. Um, you're cheapening grace. If you sin and you and then fall back on grace, you're making the gift of God cheap. And that is the biggest bunch of bull because he said it was a gift. Mm-hmm. The gift of God. He said, I freely give this to you. Now, what happens? I'm fully aware that you're going to be human. But don't run away from me. And if you will stick it out, and if you will... The, the books, you know, the things we want comes because the book says, seek first the kingdom. If you'll sell it out for my love, watch what happens. I've been asked many times, with everything you've been through, how did God manage to get you where you're going? Uh, I believe, honestly, it's because from the age of three years old, I told everybody I wanted to be a preacher and know God. Um, the book says, seek ye first the kingdom. The kingdom is that, well, if you read any of the Gospels where it talks about the kingdom of God is likened to, if you hunger to know him, he will make himself known. If you get bound and lost in the religious tradition of idiots, you'll never find them. Robert and I had both been burned by our churches, our religious affiliations, and we had both decided separately to dispense with organized religion and go with just God. And so our relationship is just God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, but we don't go to a church or subscribe to anyone who collects money because money alters the strength of your belief and alters your beliefs. It just compromises everything. So we don't belong to any organization. We belong to God. On February 15th, 2010, is when I asked Karen to marry me. And in October 2nd, 2010, was our big wedding day. And it's been nothing but total pleasure being married to this wonderful woman coming up on 12 years now. Dave was a pretty exciting dude. He had longish hair and a tattoo and played guitar and stuff. And so was there some pressure not to date a guy, a meeting guy like Dave? There was. I was told uh, that he probably wasn't a Christian. Uh, he, one lady told me he, she was pretty sure he didn't own a Bible at all. He got lots of comments about his hair, that he was being a rebellious man or boy and couldn't be walking with the Lord. And he got that a lot. He didn't get a lot of uh, friendly, welcoming experiences. No. And his hair wasn't that long either, was it? It wasn't that long, and he's also kind of a brilliant thinker, and he's he does well with conflict and uh, challenge. Because not only did he have a Bible, he's got a lot of opinions about the Bible. He does, and I think it's um, it was a little bit of a shock for some of them. <laughs> yeah, because it was a, it was usually just a drive-by um, spiritual shooting. Yeah, and he was like, no, 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 wait, 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 let's let's have a discussion about that. Yeah, I'm familiar then, with that. Then there was no discussion that people wanted to have. So well, he told me one time that he'd be going Sunday morning and on his way into the hall, people would like bully him physically. Like he'd be walking up to the front of the the building and someone would just shove him into the bushes or something. Yes. When he was younger, that happened. He'd get shoved in the bushes or, you know, usually 
the one that people, you know, if there was an altercation, it was his fault only kind of thing. And mm -hmm. so that, that was hard for him. So Dave and I have both taken the path of, instead of just, you know, throwing out the baby with the bathwater, actually trying to seek out, you know, what, what is true and what we do believe. And so it is ironic sometimes thinking back on how those days were and what people assumed about you and then where we're at today and those same people where they're at, you know, more atheist, you know, having issues in their own lives and relationships. And it's not, I'm not saying that we don't have issues. I'm just saying it, it's, it's ironic how that, you know, it's kind of turned a bit. Yeah, I relate because like I had a cousin who was always preaching at me for not being properly a meeting guy. And then he became an atheist. And now he lectures me about not being a good atheist or being too much of a Christian. <laughs> yeah, like a similar, it's kind of like, wait, what happened? <laughs> yeah, flips happen and, and they don't have to change at all. That's the thing that for me, I had to change. I had beliefs and I still have beliefs. And a lot of change had to happen to have beliefs, whereas a lot of people they were opinionatedly unthinking, and now they're just opinionatedly unthinking about different opinions that someone else gave them they haven't really thought about. Very fundamentalist, very opinionated, and then totally done with that now, but becoming very socially opinionated and similar similar thing, just more secular. Yeah, and some have told me they don't like me using the word worldview because I could talk to them about their, their their faith that they used to have and their worldview that they have now. And to them, like they used to have stupid wrong beliefs. Now they don't, they have nothing. Now they don't have those. And as far as I can see, they just have a different worldview and they don't like the way I'm viewing it as a continuation. But now what's your worldview? They're like, I used to have beliefs and now they're gone. It's like, no, you still have a way you view the world. And what is it now? I see it similar to you as far as um, when talking to people that are vehemently against all things religious but are very religious about sort of where they're at right now. Yeah. They get angry if you see something that's unorthodox or untraditional as far as their, their new belief system. It's actually similar behaviors. Let's look in the wicked mailbag. Courtney, raised in a group just like Karen's and mine, writes, Since the meeting dating scene revolved around Bible conferences and hymn sings and being invited to a sing was considered a safe first date, I felt very bereft, as I never once was asked. I questioned my desirability as a female and tried to convince myself to be more outgoing, which didn't really work. I wasn't allowed to wear makeup or paint my nails, clothes had to be modest and demure, and my body wasn't to be considered a sexual object. I wasn't overtly taught that I was tempting men if I did flaunt my body in any way that I remember, but the assumption was clear to me. I've met Courtney, and like many of us, looks wasn't her problem. It was everything else, particularly the playing field itself, and where we were all seen as occupying various parts of the big soccer game, as it were. And what do I mean by that? Well, I know many take a romanticized or progressive offense at viewing any community's dating scene as a bit of a game. One with winners and losers, high-income star players everyone is watching, and overlooked people left collecting cobwebs on the bench. Mate selection as something that can be analyzed with numbers, logic, and dare I say it, science upsets people. 
The roles of men and women in the majority of human relationships being anything one can say, well, anything about. Emily's husband, Brad, often says that he thinks it's high time we got rid of gender entirely in human society. Good luck with that, I tell him, because unlike him, I'm not convinced that biological sex is only society deep. Unfashionable as it is, I'm not convinced that it's trivial either. Maybe there's something far deeper and more powerful than just society driving us to find mates and determining what appeals to us and what triggers our instinctual disgust response. There seems to be something more ancient and deeper than society at work here, I think. Brad, for example, has himself a monogamous marriage to a single, lovely young woman and three great kids, and I'm not sure heavy metal music or violent video games made him do it. I'm not even convinced the patriarchy can take all the credit for having Brad do what it took to become a patriarch, not once, but three times himself, and remain one to this day, working harder than almost anyone I know. But many find any scholarly analysis of dating and mating beyond people are all special, unique individuals, all doing whatever they want in a wholly unique and unpredictable, individualistic, special way, upsetting. In order to do so, for one, one has to lay aside all of the shoulds and have a long, hard look in the cold, hard light of day at wases and ises of wouldn'ts and didn'ts. Of course, people shouldn't have to do any number of things to live their lives and be happy. But in the real world, what has happened continues to happen largely. Progress is, in the area of dating, perhaps more than in any other area, largely a modern myth. People are not happier now than they have ever been before. That's just not true. Only fans and hashtag me too have failed to fix everything that was wrong with gender relations once and for all. And the fact that we have gay people and trans people and non-binary babies and asexual and demisexual and gender-fond folks and so on doesn't seem to be changing much of anything for the vast majority of the rest of us. For most of us, all of that is like Squid Game or similar, something some people are into, but that's mostly on the internet. For nearly everyone, it generally still comes down to a penis, natural or artificial, homegrown or built in a plastics factory or operating room, going somewhere and people trying to be happy about that. And it generally comes down to people, almost always two people, trying to share a living space and maybe even bills and kitchens and kids. Or living alone and feeling like on some level their life isn't quite what it ought to be. Let's get all cis-heteronormative up in here. Because the concept of norm, from whence what is normative springs, has mathematical, statistical meaning that is not attached to any moralizing or any shoulds or thou shalt nots at all. Of course, nowadays, it looks like the Western world is chock full of brightly colored 21st century gender LARPers drawing with an anime aesthetic from a veritable palette of identity avatars created by username Shadow of the Dude on Tumblr in 2017. It's mostly about pronouns and hairstyles. But this is now. That was then. We faced a simpler time, with a whole lot of shut doors and falling down social systems. I'm going to have a look at it, that obscure, rarely raised these days subject of heterosexual dating and mate selection. People like Louise Perry, who study this kind of thing, cold, unromantic bastards that they are, use language like high-status females and low-status males to talk about how most people comport themselves in their dating lives. And what determines that kind of thing? What spells success in those areas for some and failure for others? Stupid things, mostly. Immutable characteristics, largely. So, 
in our brethren group, there weren't so many of the kind of career multimillionaires as, say, there were in the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. They're allowed to do little else but run businesses. We were a bit less like that. But when it came to high-status guys in our group, money was still the main thing. So the tallest, slimmest, blondest girl with the biggest chest in my generation married the guy who became a wealthy doctor. The little girl, who was most charming and glamorous all around, married the big, muscular, ambitious businessman, who since made a career out of owning and running many, many, many things. The adorable, stay-at-home, pie-baking girls with the girl-next-door looks and homeschool and gluten-free baking skills married quiet, low-key, wealthy guys who kept them in really nice homes and cottages, vacation trips, and a small fleet of shiny new vehicles. For guys, there was just no such thing as too much money. We were success objects. What our car looked like mattered more than what we did. For girls, they didn't need any money, but there was no such thing as too much beauty. It was supposed to be genetic, though, natural-looking, something you would pass on to your kids without having to pay for nose jobs all around. They were mother material. And I don't think our group, or our parents' generation, or Western civilization invented all that. But they weren't fighting it either. It certainly has little support from, say, the Bible, though. Let me look into these very gender-specific status markers a bit more, just from growing up in it and seeing how lives turned out, and with no special training in statistics or human evolutionary theory or sociology. Unlike girls, guys didn't really need a very pretty face at all to succeed in the dating pool. Above all, they needed money and a life that was clearly headed into a bunch more of it. And as to physical attributes, tall guys and muscular guys did as well in the meeting as they do in any dating community. Height, dramatic chest-to-waist ratios with slim hips, what looked great in a suit Sunday morning and in an office where suits were worn. Girls did very well with photogenic faces that didn't need a lot of makeup, great cheekbones and big eyes and dramatic chest-to-waist-to-hip ratios, what looked great in a dress Sunday morning and at home. And all that stuff continues to work on Tinder to this day. You can easily filter out all the guys under six foot if you like. Intelligence was a double-edged sword, a bit suspect. Guys benefited from brains if they were the sort of brains that made money, but not if said brains made them talkative, creative, argumentative, deep, or analytical, particularly as to Bible study or church politics. Nobody liked a guy who read things. Girls benefited from brains if said brains didn't make them too ambitious or in any way seen as competing with their prospective husbands. Sweet and quiet played well for girls just as warm and quiet did for guys. Quiet confidence worked for both, so long as one was quiet and Christian content. There was no greater sin than not being happy in the meeting, except perhaps talking about that feeling. Both men and women were to be submissive. Submission is going along with something you don't agree with or want. Men had to submit to the leadership in their assembly, and women, in turn, had to submit to their husbands and fathers. In the meeting, there were a lot of women-only and men-only conversations, too. I'd walk into kitchens, and the women in there would shut right up. They'd been talking about us, you see. A woman would come into the dining room, and the men would pause. We've been talking a bit more freely than we could with them there. I think it's a lot less like that nowadays. Last names were a really big deal, too. So, me, my last name wasn't a high-status one. Didn't help me at all. In fact, it had some sketchy associations. 
my grandpa sitting in the visitor's section for divorcing his wife, and my dad sitting there stony-faced and mute while his peers discussed the Bible, his having been silenced by them for getting on the wrong side of church politics involving impropriety and disputes over, naturally, money, and for being too strict and resistant to change for the liking of his middle-aged peers. He doesn't listen, was what some said of my dad, by which they meant he doesn't agree with us. He doesn't see things our way. Some of my aunts had married high-status men, though, because they were pretty, and these were men whose last names did hold sway, so the people I was cousins with made me look good at least. They were higher status than I was. They were all very good-looking, and mostly were taller and wealthier than I. One cousin, tall, blonde, and blue-eyed, became a lawyer at a prestigious law firm, yet is one of the most unargumentative people I know, so that was okay at home and at church. Most of my cousins are pretty smart. But the ones who aren't have married people who use their brains to cover my cousin's lacks, not to highlight them. I was thought a bit smart, kind of, but not the money-making kind of smart. Unfortunately for me, it was the kind of smart that was a little too comfortable with analyzing not only the Bible, but writing and thinking of various other kinds as well. I was always reading books, too, and not even ones about making money. I was the kind of smart that continually saw glaring inconsistencies in logic, theology, and church ethics and practice. The kind that talked too much, and not small talk, either. The kind of thinking that was always turned on all day and running, even though it was seldom plotting ways to earn lots of money. Courtney is a different story. Good-looking, but from an extremely high-status family in her group, her last name is Too Good, when you are a genetic confluence of two or three of the most prestigious and traditionally powerful names in your community, it becomes very difficult to marry anyone of similar status without marrying someone you're related to from one, two, or three directions. If your family has too much clout and is very serious and strict about your church's rules, it scares off potential boyfriends. What guy is going to be good enough to please dad and mom but also isn't a cousin? Another problem is that Courtney is smart, and not just homeschooling and gluten-free baking smart, but able to keep up with and interested in interacting with the smartest of men kind of smart. The kind of smart that not only reads things, but writes things as well. It's no good dutifully submitting to men when everyone knows you see right through them. Where Courtney's male cousin married a cute, homeschooling, gluten-free baking girl who says, Oh, you'd have to ask Matt whenever the conversation gets even slightly religious or political. Courtney has thoughts of her own. Lots of them. Oh, she tries to be meek and quiet and not put herself forward, but it is of no avail. She's listening and understanding all the time. And one can guess what she might think and how that might differ significantly from what her parents raised her to think. That was intimidating to shallower, dumber guys, which gave her all the trouble. There was entirely too much thinking going on in Courtney Town. In her church and in our meeting, one of the keys to fitting in and getting along was not thinking too much, particularly about God, the Bible, or the meetings or church services. There was something you attended, not something you thought about overmuch. So people like Courtney normally have to marry wild cards if they marry at all, people from outside the system entirely, people to be misfits with into their golden years. As to the rich douchebags and their trophy bimbets, if it makes you feel any better, most of them cheated on each other and or got divorced in stereotypical midlife crises. So they're schadenfreude in that. I wouldn't trade places 
with any of them. In groups like the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church branch of our own group, you're supposed to get a wife, but it goes a bit beyond that. They're supposed to be an up-and-coming younger generation. In fact, the group is supposed to help with that. Ours had Bible conferences, youth hymn sings, and hay rides, and sleigh rides, and group skates, and youth camps, and all sorts of things like that, particularly for that purpose. But those groups I've just mentioned will also take your wife back if you don't toe the line. If you get excommunicated from groups of that kind, your wife is encouraged or sometimes even required to shun, maybe even divorce you as well. My own group wasn't quite as bad as that. But imagine thinking about leaving your religious group and knowing it would mean losing virtually all contact with your wife, kids, and relatives. Something about depression, for fans of depression, and loving yourself. Growing up, school and all manner of 70s and 80s coke-fueled videos extolled not only the virtue, but the necessity of loving Loving yourself. yourself. Now, some of us Christian kids were raised that we were nothing, that we were sinners, that we were the enemies of God and all that is right deep down, but that God had taken pity on us and saved us anyway. So now, we were taught, we were to enjoy the fact that God, quite mistakenly, thought we were pretty keen and his wayward children and all that, but that deep down, we were to never forget how sinful and horrible we really were, even if we weren't acting like that on a daily basis because of gratitude for God's salvation. And many of us had depression too, and some of us were teenagers, so if you were me, You genuinely believe that it was a normal thing for people who, unlike me, were normal to wake up and be able to expect to look in the mirror each morning and love themselves. Not accept themselves, not forgive or overlook their flaws, but love themselves. And back then, I imagined them, like the cat from Red Dwarf, stopping at every single mirror they passed and saying, Wow! I look good! And that didn't happen to me most of the time. Did it happen to them? Really? And then a new bit of information was bestowed upon us all by grinning faces in these chipper videos. We had to learn to love ourselves or no one else would. Great. I was single and lonely and feeling awkward about my new young self, my relatives in church said I was weird, an outsider, a failure as a member of their group, My sister said I was fat to hurt my feelings when I was a bony 18-year-old who was missing a lot of meals because I didn't care to feed myself. Church was reminding me to never forget what a horrible sinner I really was deep down, and now this. Something else that was my fault. Now, I'm not going to say there is no wisdom in the idea, echoed in things Harold said in previous episodes and so on, that self-acceptance, peace with yourself, is not a valuable, important, necessary thing. But as always, as a depressive, I'm more comfortable shooting for feeling more contented more of the time, more accepting of myself, than I am with foolishly trying to shoulder some obligation to have a fiery, burning passion, a whirlwind romance with myself. For thinking I'm the greatest person who ever lived. I am not, after all, Kanye West. My greatest regret is not that I have never had the opportunity to watch myself perform. Pain in life, as I will never be able to see me perform. 
I do counsel people who tend to neglect themselves to make a point of treating themselves no worse than they would treat a child of theirs. So, no, not feeding, bathing, and sleeping as a private form of punishment and neglect. Be a good mother to yourself, I tell unhappy adults. But I don't tell lonely people, single people, people who've just been divorced or dumped, people who've been cheated on, that the problem is with them, that they don't love themselves enough, and so it's their fault that this happened. It's like when a clinically peppy, cheerful co-worker grinned and parroted at me that old trope, there's nothing holding you back but you. I guess there's never been any racism, sexism, or any human situation in which someone was having trouble succeeding because of anything that was in the control of other people rather than themselves then. Now, again, like most inspirational phrases, if being told to love yourself and other people will love you, or that no one can stop you if you believe in yourself, or that negativity isn't real, so nothing unpleasant ever needs to be looked at or dealt with, but can always safely, wisely be ignored, if, if that inspires you, then yay inspiration. But if someone posts or says an inspirational phrase and it inspires you to blame yourself and want to go buy some rope... I'm going to go out on a limb and say that maybe, just maybe, that's a failed inspirational phrase, rather than one people should double down on and continue shoving at you. One woman of my acquaintance who struggles with serious depression and self-esteem issues has objected repeatedly online to the inspirational phrase about not being able to expect anyone else to love you until you love yourself, and I agree with her. How that sounds to her is that every single time she was dumped and all the time she spent being single, it's been her fault for being unlovable, for not loving herself first. That's like saying it's her fault when she's depressed for not being happy enough. Her fault if she's poor for not having invested sufficient capital in sound investment opportunities. For not working for 20 years as a thoracic surgeon at John Hopkins. So, like pumpkin spice lasagna and communism, if it works for you, that's fantastic. We're all really happy. But maybe entertain the notion that mileage may vary, and it might not sound like quite the same song to absolutely everyone, especially people who are nothing like you. This song was written at a time when people kept telling me when I performed live that my voice sounded just like Brad Roberts from Crash Test Dummies. Sometimes I despair the world will never see another The dummies were pretty big there for a few years, so I was working on purposely having a Brad Roberts impression handy and intended this song to sound like it was by the Crash Test Dummies somewhat, even though it was in a deeper key range than Brad Roberts normally sings in. Looking in my hard drive for songs to do for this podcast season, I found no recorded copy at all of my sister and I singing this song. It's quite likely that no recording of it was ever made, but also, there was a recording of it made eight years ago. No idea why. But there it was, which helped a lot. Sitting in my hard drive, partly recorded, with a new verse that reflects the fact that Karen got married to Bobby. There was the rough track. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. When she was born, the nurses gathered round and said... What a bouncing baby. 
and I can tell by listening to the acoustic guitar track that I had a mic on the guitar while I was doing the guide track and that my voice was picking up in the acoustic guitar mic as well. I can also see that rather than taking the time to actually record a proper second acoustic guitar track to fill out the acoustic guitar sound, I just copied and pasted the existing track and slid it slightly out of time, which doesn't really do the trick. I could see that I'd used a MIDI interface to put in an organ track, which obviously wasn't part of the Pennsylvania performance almost 30 years ago. And I could see that I'd done a bass line that's likely me playing it, as far as I can see. And that my sister, always being tough to get involved in music and now entirely done with it, had bowed out, so I had done a very careful job of trying to sound just like her in my scratchy, wobbly falsetto. I had the benefit of copying her actual part that she came up with. Send all this off to Evan, and he emailed me drums. A trick I've been doing lately is dirtying up the sound of Evan's digital drums to make them sound less plastic and perfect. Because Evan's drums are going to be mixed in with a bunch of home-recorded stuff, when they sound so plastic and perfect and pristine, they stand out, and I found that dirtying them up made them blend. Then it was just a matter of replacing the stuff that I wanted replaced. I put down a piano part, which I decided should feature more prominently than my usual little piano standing at the back parts tend to do. the single acoustic guitar that I had played along with the rough vocal with pairs of regular six-string and Nashville strung acoustics to put quietly in with the piano. I did some shakers and a tambourine to hide in with Evan's drums. changed the settings on the organ virtual instrument 
to sound a bit more wobbly and church organ-like. And of course, added a shit ton more harmony vocals. Friend stayed home on funeral day, fearing she'd leap out of a coffin. She was too much. She was too much. When she was born, the nurses gathered round and said. What a bouncing baby When she grew up The people they all smiled and said What a swinging lady But when she died Her friend stayed home on funeral day Fearing she'd leap out of a coffin She was too much, they thought She was too much She was too much for marriage Back in the day Flirty'd been and flown away She had a spin party and we had food songs and gifts and it was good thinking she'd never marry but then she met a real good guy named Robert Stiff and now there soon would be a wedding She was too much She was too much for marriage She was too much, we thought She was too much She was too much for marriage Single's just another word for Nothing left to lose, she said, holding Bobby's hand in hers. And sometimes I despair, the world will never see an 